Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Radiotherapy. Today is, of course, Sunday, the 30th of May. It is just frightening how quick this year is passing. And it's also unfortunate to um, be going through another, hopefully this time, a much quicker snap lockdown in Melbourne as we continue to live in a COVID normal universe. My name is Dr. Moto. It is a pleasure to uh, have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us on 102.7 FM or on podcast or on the Triple R website. In the studio with me today, in the virtual studio, I should say, with me today are the, are the, is the veteran panelist panel beater who is helping to co-host today's show and also help with uh, the technical aspects within the studio. We've been given orders to keep our distancing and not to travel around too much, given that we are in um, a lockdown here in Melbourne. So myself and my two guests today are, in fact, um, broadcasting onto the airwaves via Zoom. On Zoom today, I have two colleagues and friends on the show. Um, we have um, John Vacoon, who is a senior mental health clinician and veteran um, psychiatric nurse who has been a psychiatric nurse for about four decades, I believe it is. That's right. How are you, John? I'm well, thanks, Dr. Modo, and thanks for having us on. It is an absolute pleasure. We've been talking about this for the best part of this year, so it's an absolute pleasure to finally have you on the show. Thank you. And accompanying John is Stephen Bowie. Stephen is a mental health support worker who has also worked in the mental health space for a decent amount of time. We're talking about a decade or more. Is that right, Stephen? Yep, 100%. Thank you, Dr. Modo. Wonderful. And today we're going to be crafting the show around a very, very interesting project that many, many of us might not really have thought about much when the pandemic hit in that uh, all the um, people who might have been of no fixed abode might have been surviving on the streets, um, the people who were um, struggling with homelessness in Melbourne. What happened to them during the COVID pandemic? And in fact, uh, John and Stephen were um, tasked with uh, facilitating their transition off the streets to make sure that they're safe and protected from the virus during the course of last year. So we'd love to hear about this project, how they got about doing it, what were some of the challenges and what were some of the key learnings. Um, I should also add at this point that John and Stephen, they uh, are longtime clinicians at one of Melbourne's largest um, um, public mental health um, services a large um, metropolitan mental health service. And this service was um, uh, very much heavily involved in um, providing um, social as well as mental health care to the homeless. Um, and when the pandemic hit, it, it was therefore um, normal for, uh, natural for um, their team to be tasked with this very interesting and I would imagine monumental um, project. And panel beater, how are you? How are how are things in the studio today? Yeah, it's um, it 
it's uh, a flashback to 2020 in the studio today with uh, very few people around, all the social distancing, all the, all the cleaning going on, um, but uh, quite well. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not, not too bad. Given the circumstances, as good as it can be. You know, we've got um, beautiful sunshine beaming down on Melbourne today. It's a beautiful winter's morning. Life could be much tougher. Yeah. Onto the news for uh, the show today. Um, so I, I came across a very interesting study this week, actually. Um, it's, a, it's what we call an um, EPUB um, in press. So it's been accepted for publication in a prestigious journal called Molecular, Bio, uh, Molecular um, Psychiatry. Um, but it hasn't quite hit the, uh, the print press, so to speak. So it's been available online. And this is something that the academic journals often do in that um, they would accept a manuscript for publication and they would have it online first before it goes into the next issue of the journal. So this is, uh, I would love to say, literally hot off the press, but this is hot on the digital press, if you'd like. And it is a study that looked at the association between antidepressant use and reduced risk of intubation or death in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So it's a large multi-center observational study um, conducted at 40, uh, about 40 uh, hospitals in the greatest, greater Paris area. And they looked at um, outcomes of more than 7,000 adult patients who were hospitalized between January and April last year with laboratory-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. And within 48 hours of their hospitalization, about 5% of the patients, so 350 out of the 7,000 patients, were administered an antidepressant, and they looked at their treatment outcomes. And at our follow-up, about two weeks um, after their hospitalization, they compared the rates of intubation or death, and they found that people who were treated with an antidepressant had a lower risk of dying and a risk of being intubated in ICU, um, therefore needing um, respiratory support, which is very interesting. No, no. Um, Can I jump in there? So antidepressant therapy, are we talking um, singularly about SSRIs or was there a variety? Yes. So um, of the 350 or so patients who were administered an antidepressant, about 200 um, so about two-thirds of the patients were administered an SSRI antidepressant. So an SSRI is a, seri- a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It is probably one of the more commonly used and first-line antidepressants used these days. So about two-thirds were administered an SSRI antidepressant and about 150, so roughly uh, one-third of the patients given an antidepressant um, were given a non-SSRI antidepressant, um, such as a serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, also known as SNRI, or an older antidepressant, so like a tricyclic antidepressant. Um, And it was very interesting to read that um, the patients who were administered an antidepressant had lower risks of these serious outcomes in in the COVID disease, um, who contracted the COVID disease, Um, And particularly for um, patients who were administered SSRIs, they tended to fare a bit better. And what is interesting about the study is that uh, previous studies, smaller studies, have found that antidepressants were effective in preventing deterioration in COVID-19 patients. Um, And the putative mechanism 
So the hypothesis is that uh, the antidepressants um, rendering an anti-inflammatory action, that might be what is helping um, in preventing deterioration in COVID-19 disease. Um, so very, very, very interesting. I mean, at the laboratory level, so at the, the uh, not at the bedside, but at the laboratory level, um, there have been some studies and some evidence to suggest that antidepressants um, may prevent the SARS-CoV-2 virus from infecting epithelial cells. So these are the surface cells in um, on the on the skin and also um, lining uh, the um, out the inward facing, but um, atmosphere facing um, lining of the lung, and they think it's maybe because of that mechanism that um, uh, people who are administered antidepressants might fare a little bit better um, if they were to contract this terrible illness. So very interesting finding, um, but of course, you know, uh, this is a retrospective study um, in that it was um, data that was um, subsequently uh, retrieved and then analysed. Um, and uh, look, that's, that's not to say that um, SSRIs or an antidepressant will make you immune to um, the SARS-CoV virus, but there is a statistically significant effect um, finding that you tended to fare a little bit better. Panel beta. Yeah, um, I've got to ask the, uh, the eternal researcher's question or the reviewer of researcher's question. So what? You know, so what do we do with that information? So um, we, we're, surely we're not suggesting that if you're um, otherwise uh, in good mental shape that you're going to be put on uh, antidepressants in order to mitigate any risk, are we? Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good point, right? I mean, I think you know, on the back of this study alone, it's probably not going to change practice. However, you know, I think we also have to bear in mind that this is a um, infection, this is a virus, this is a pandemic that is still ravaging the world um, all over um, in, in many, many different countries as we speak. And um, you know, yes, we are starting to um, get some gain some knowledge and expertise and how to more effectively treat this terrible condition. Um, but we still um, haven't conquered that just yet. Um, and in certain jurisdiction and certain patient populations, even though they might not have a pre-existing or coexisting depressive illness um, or anxiety disorder, um, you know, being on one of these medications that carry relatively few side effects, particularly in the shorter term, and if it means that they're going to fare better, they're going to um, have lesser chances of being admitted into ICU or, you know, um, need respiratory support, um, it might be of some um, therapeutic clinical um, value. Interesting. Hey, uh, Modo, I've got uh, a very quick item on uh, procrastination, specifically uh, university student procrastination. We've just come to um, the end of week 12 of the semester, and uh, what that means is that students are in a heightened state of anxiety and stress as they enter their SWATVAC period with lots of uh, deadlines looming, and procrastination is a very real thing for them. Um, so I dipped in, I, I was giving them a bit of a pep talk uh, during the week, um, and and uh, about how to how to combat procrastination, and 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 part of that was uh, expressing some camaraderie that it's not uncommon. In fact, um, the research that I pointed them to 
About 80 to 90% of students at some point procrastinate in some way. About 75% of students self-identify as procrastinators. And about 50% of these students actually have a problematic issue with procrastination. So it's actually interfering with their their lives and their well-being. It's a pretty big deal. Procrastination has some very real and measurable consequences. Um, Procrastination which might lead to delayed submission of work or delayed um, starting of work um, as has been shown through a major meta-analysis of 38,000 students across five disciplines to have had at a minimum um, a 5% um, grade uh, deficiency compared to on-timers. and of course, the other consequence is that uh, you know, and there's certain like there's a there's a bit of a paradoxical loop here that a consequence of procrastination is increased stress, anxiety, depression, and uh, fatigue. All all um all all very much antagonistic to uh, a student's well-being. What are the reasons? The research points to very specific reasons, some of them in common to all sorts of procrastinators, um, but I was I was particularly looking at student procrastinators. Um, f- first, one of the they're about, about six. We could uh, loosely uh, group them into six, I reckon, um, f- across the research I was looking at. Um, there's fear of failure. There's confusion about starting, so actually getting underway. There's the indecision attribute, which is, am I doing it correctly? Am I doing what's asked of me? Um, a fourth one is that procrastination itself, ironically, is a coping mechanism, <laughs> Right, you know, so like a delay. You know, pe- uh, students were reporting that they had a sense of security about, um, you know, just keeping themselves at an arm's distance from the thing that they were supposed to be doing. Um, five, similar to fear of failure, but worthwhile distinguishing is um, fear of criticism. So not just failure, but 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 criticism. Um, and six is perhaps uh, one for. Uh, a uh, certain uh, cohort, probably a marginal cohort, but one that uh, the research picked up on was students reporting that they actually liked it. There was a thrill in getting closer and closer to the deadline, putting themselves under the pump and then pulling an all-nighter and doing it. You know, they were self-diagnosing that as a strategy for them to actually get it done. Um so there's a lot of students out there who are addressing this. Um, parents of students out there addressing this. Of course, teachers out there are stressing this. If you look at my my inbox at the moment, it's about 80% of students, uh, 80% of my mail is students asking for extensions at the moment. Um, it's it's quite, uh, quite significant. There's a couple of quick solutions, a couple of strategies uh, based on research, and it all boils down to breaking it down, making these big tasks and these impressive tasks small. And a really interesting piece of research was done where students were um, given a task um, and uh, they were given uh, three tasks, actually, and they were then given um, options. They could either um, submit the three at the deadlines of the teacher's choosing, they could submit um, at the deadline of their own choosing, or they could submit um, uh, all, uh, all of them at once at the end of the semester. And so students were left to make that decision for themselves. Uh, do you want to have a guess, Dr. Modo? Which of those three scenarios returned the submissions on time and better quality? Uh, I'm, I'm going to be a bit contrarian here, and I'm going to suggest it's the procrastinators. No, it's, it's, it's the students who um, chose their own deadline and, um, and submitted uh, three uh, sequentially. 
In other words, they didn't use the uh, end of semester deadline that was set for them. They didn't use um, the deadline set by the teacher. They used their own deadlines that they set at the beginning of semester um, and s submitted three different pieces during the semester. Okay, so so chunking it down. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 doing it in a sort of a, a stepwise. Yeah. So any students listening to that, any parents of students, any teachers of students, the best advice you can give is break it down, make it small, make it small, yeah. take control, put yourself in control of it. Hey, um, panel leader, I think I might have uh, um, missed this. Did you mention there was actually some correlation between um, procrastination and uh, unsuccessful, you know, um, lack of success with certain um, milestones or, or actual academic performance? Yeah, there was a performance. Um, I got it, I think it was a 2015, there were two studies. Um, one of them was a very specific cohort study and one of them was a meta-analysis. The meta-analysis were very impressive with 38,000 students across, I think, multiple disciplines, four or five disciplines, and they consistently showed that uh, students leaving it late or submitting late um, sub not only experience poorer um, well-being but also poorer results. Very interesting, very interesting research. Um, of course, I, I think um, here in the the virtual studio today, we are all students of life, <laughs> and procrastination is something that we can all relate to. And we are going to take a quick break. It's not a, it's not procrastination. We're going to come back and hear from our guests, John and Stephen. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I've been wanting to get John and Stephen on the show for quite some time now because they have been involved in a very, very interesting project over the past year. And I'd love to hear from them about how that project has evolved um, uh, more recently. Um, but uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, I'll just explain and introduce um, the project that they were tasked to do. And uh, so um, John and Stephen are, are veteran mental health clinicians um, at one of Melbourne's largest um, metropolitan mental health service. And when the pandemic first hit, they were tasked to assist the homeless and um, make sure that they receive safe shelter and also sufficient um, distancing and quarantine from the virus. Of course, you know, if we look back um, 12, 18 months ago, no one really had any idea how um, um, significant this uh, virus could have been. And, uh, you know, they um, wanted to get on the front foot and make sure that uh, no one was left behind, so to speak. So, I'd love to hear from our guests. Um, maybe, um, Stephen, if I can start with you, um, just to um, get to know you a little bit and for our listeners' sake, um, tell us a bit about yourself, um, how long you've been working in mental health, what drew you into working in the mental health field? Yeah, thanks, Mido. Um, yeah, I've been, as, we, as you did in the introduction, uh, been in, working in mental health for uh, 10 years now, exactly a decade, and um, I don't know how I got into it. I kind of just fell into it, but um, so pleased I did. And uh, to be honest, I wish I'd done it years and years ago. <laughs> um, it's been uh, just an amazing journey. Um, and, yeah, I guess I'd, I'd rather talk about, 
you know what we did in the in the project and um, myself but uh, no all good thank you absolutely and john what about yourself give us a, a little bio on um what's gotten you working in mental health for the past four decades well, I kind of fell into it too in some ways, a bit like Stephen. I started off with an interest in architecture and um, ended up working at a hospital over a summer period. I loved it. Uh, just found uh, working with people, particularly with a mental illness, um, was challenging, but it was an easy connection for me to make. I'm not sure why, but it's 43 years later, I'm still doing it and I still have the same passion. So, yeah. That's me. That's great to hear. And John, of course, you and I go back a very long time, but that was we something do. about you I didn't know actually that you started off wanting to um, design buildings and you ended up um, um, designing um, people's uh, you know good mental health care. So good on you. Thank you. Yeah. Tell us about the project. How well, did when did it start? Well, pro about this time last year. So effectively, I guess what happened was that with when we went into major lockdown. And we, no one really knew what the formula was to deal with it. We, the government decided that um, people, the homeless were also needed to be sheltered during that period. Um, and so they called upon the housing providers to um, provide housing for them. And initially, no stock in terms of housing. So people were housed in hotels. I think it soon became obvious then that the housing was one issue, but um, the, there are a lot of other issues that manifested. And one of the things that came up was people's mental health. Uh, well, it wasn't clearly uh, a case of a diagnosis being given to somebody, but the stresses, I guess, opened up a, a can of worms as to what people were feeling emotionally out there. And the housing services were a bit overwhelmed with that. So my particular service uh, volunteered to partner with the, the housing services to provide that support. And hence, Stephen and I were enlisted to um, engage with that. Most of our role was, I guess, was, <clears throat> wasn't was a diagnostic role. Uh, once people thought we were from a mental, knew we were from a mental health uh, clinic, often there was an avoidance to want to talk to us. So Steve and I just identified ourselves as two healthcare professionals and set about knocking on people's doors and just introducing ourselves, really. We had no agenda. I guess our main agenda, Stephen, would have been we don't want to get COVID, nor do we want to give COVID. So that was our primary function in the beginning, was just educating people around that, how not to spread the infection. So the mental health came secondary. Yeah, and, and very much uh, like mental health is sort of moving towards, obviously there's a clinical aspect to it, but I think the... Um, the idea of a really true holistic approach. Um, so John and I were, you know, focusing on not just mental health. We were focusing on, you know, the, the person's future, their current physical health issues. So we were really dealing with the person that was actually presenting in front of us and what their particular challenges were at that time. So I'm hearing there were two aspects to the roles that you provided. One was a, a public awareness and an education role, right? Um, teaching people about infection control practices, you know, um, social social distancing, why these are important, and the removing um, people off the street so that they receive sufficient um, quarantine was the other aspect. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, pretty much. That was, um, I guess, the idea was roof overhead first, which made sense, and then. Um, going in and making sure that we're actually, you know, addressing the actual issues that were there. So it was once the roof over the head was 
was done then, you know, food was the next thing, I guess, and then uh, their emotional uh, comfort within that. Also, um, you know, to be quite honest, there was a... Uh, there was a lot of people who perhaps met in those hotels that were hoping to avoid each other on the streets. So there was a bit of conflict resolution that also happened amongst it. Yep. So you might have heard there was uh, quite a bit of uh, publicity. Um, I don't know whether it's bad or good, but uh, just a lot of publicity, particularly in CBD areas with issues with the hotels. Um, and um, I, I think that like John said, by providing a presence and a regular presence, we can, I don't know, we we're just maybe we we're lucky, but we, we tended to avoid a lot of those challenges. But, uh, you know, John's right that the whole idea was that the government put, uh, well, depends on what numbers you use. We had initially 960, but it blew out to about 1,600 people, um, all put into these uh, uh, areas where they either, you know, may not have wanted to all be together. And... Um, yeah, it was a lot of, as John said, kind, kind of kind of resolution and, and uh, getting to understand it. You know, everyone's got a bit of a perspective. Hey, uh, Steve and John, I'm just keen to get uh, a sense of how the, um, the the project itself was organised. Um, there's a couple of things that are occurring to me, and um, on especially uh, given that this is so front of mind off the back of the Victorian inquiry into homelessness yeah. uh, recently. So first of all, maybe just how did you guys identify who were your target uh, homeless people? Um, you know, for the layperson, we might assume that anybody who's homeless has got some degree of mental health, in, you know, um, at, at risk at least, of, of mental health issues. How, how did you characterise who you were looking to support? I guess uh, we, we made the assumption that everybody did have some, required some emotional support. So um, I guess we were charged with going to specific uh, venues. So, and within those venues, um, we, our presence was really to say we, we think you know, if you do require support for your mental health, we are here for you. There was some times when it was obvious when someone did require some uh, mental health support because of behaviours and so forth. Um, so we would target those individuals. But we'd also, as time went on, we we had a few people that, you know, came up to us uh, basically because, because of someone else that we dealt with had recommended that they talk to us. So it wasn't a matter of us targeting. It was a matter of us having a presence and saying, hey, and then I guess the proof in the pudding, you know, and and word of mouth meant others then felt safe enough to come and talk to us and so forth. And, I mean, to be quite honest, some of the issues that came up, I was surprised, I, you know, not shocked surprised, but just surprised. I, I thought I had a knowledge and I realised how little knowledge I had about the world of homelessness and so forth. So... You know, some people were quite content to continue with their mental illness and it wasn't up for us to make a judgment around that if they were okay to do that. And then there were others who, uh, for the first time, were experiencing mental illness and those were the ones, I guess, that we tended to focus on a little bit more. Um, and we weren't treating per se. So even though we had support, medical support and so forth, our, our role really was to refer to other services. So... You know, it was a large bit of the work was um, the partnerships around that, the housing providers, the primary care network and so forth. So we were I, trying not to overburden them. I imagine uh, it was very closely uh, interwined with um, <clears throat> drug and alcohol services. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, hand in hand, really, in some ways. So, um, 
John, just what you're working with. <laughs> John, you mentioned that there were a few things that you came across that surprised even yourself as a veteran working in um, yep. the Melbourne mental health um, space for 40 years, 40 plus years. Can you share with the listeners what those things were? Can you think of a couple of examples yeah, that well, you I weren't even I, expecting? I alluded to the fact that um, some people didn't want to meet other people, you know, uh, in that hotel, that there was conflicts that existed out on the street, for example, that I didn't realise had existed. So, you know, some people would walk into the hotel and go, nah, and thanks for the offer, but I'm not staying here with while that person's here and walk back out of the hotel. So I didn't realise there was this politic that existed amongst some of the homeless people. Um, some thing that surprised me was that some people could not get used to a hotel room and still slept on the wow. floor. Wow. So put the kid on the floor and so forth. Just the, the whole idea of the bed was too foreign to them and, and spent their whole time there sleeping on the floor. What do you do? With Others. That? What do you do? Pardon? Do you do any counselling around that or do you just uh, let that be the case? No, no. I guess with the numbers, we couldn't do counselling with everybody. Sure. But certainly that would be that was something that we were addressing with them. So we'd come and check in on them and so forth. And, um, you know, get, getting to know people, um, there was, I guess there was a time it, with that particular incident there, there was a time after speaking with him, realised that, um, you know, the man was a collector and actually was collecting musical instruments. So there was a whole different side to this man and he had these instruments, guitars in storage and wow. could tell you about them and he had a half-built one that he was making there. And this is a man who's been living on the streets uh, and he said to us, I don't know what it's like to be housed. I feel anxious. I wasn't anxious until I was in the hotel. This is too much for me. So, I mean, and then there was the opposite side to that, Stephen, where someone said, I've never had a roof over my head in winter. I like this. Sign me up for housing, you know, just, just juxtaposition with everything going on. So there was no clear, uh, I guess, way of, of dealing with homeless people. They're all individuals and they all have individual needs um, and views on things. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, Stephen, did you have some of these uh, realisations and, and, you know, just, just the, the juxtaposition, as John put it, of... Um, you know, um, what's going on in terms of uh, what, what's going on socially and in terms of housing and, you know, all the various different sort of conflicts that you, exp that, that you might have witnessed or heard yourself that stuck in your mind? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, I think that uh, the beautiful thing about this and also I think you touched on it before, Moto, about, you know, we're all students of life in a way and, you know, the learnings that you get from uh, individuals is is amazing and, you know, you, sometimes you think you've just got it nailed and then you realise that, or you actually, we don't. Um, but, yeah, no, similar sorts of things, you know, there was there was a, there were clients that would um, sleep with the doors open, you know, even though that they knew that were vulnerable to, to, to assault or robbery, et cetera, for instance, um, but it's just they could not have those door closed because they just were not used to that. Um, so, you know, those sorts of things. The other thing I was just probably going to mention very, very briefly also was that the other part of this whole project, which um, answers some um, panel beaters question a bit, I think, as well, is that, uh, you know, we worked very, very, very closely with the actual hoteliers because, you know, they've, they're, some of these hotels were actually very, very nice. Um, so, you know, they they needed some support and then that's how we also got referrals to clients that they were struggling to deal with a little bit. 
So, yeah, it was just fascinating. And um, Are you yeah. at liberty to share with us um, what some of these hotels were and, and, and just how many hotels were actually involved? I, I'd still like to get a sense of the actual quanta of numbers. You told me that initially you were expecting to see about, well, you know, to, to be, um, um, to, to touch the, the lives of, say, 900, 960 people, and that sort of um, blew out to about 1,600. Yeah. Um, how yep. many? How many hotels? How many um, NGOs? How many rooms? How many mothers? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the great questions and hard to answer. But we had, um, yeah, we worked it out in our. We've got like we work within a catchment area, and that um, even though it's quite expansive, it runs from from Port Melbourne over to to Murrumbina and then down to to kind of um, North Road. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's quite an expansive area, but we had about um, 27 different sites. Some of those were, um, you know, uh, well-known hotels, and some of them were were things like, um, you know, groups like Ridges and City Edge and places like that. So uh, yeah, some were also just a conglomerate of apartments, like uh, bed stays, if you like. So yeah, yeah. so it was amazing. Um, and I guess, you know, with as far as the partnerships, most of them were um, with housing providers, the likes of Launch Housing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we also, uh, as John pointed out, a lot of our work was around referrals. So a lot of um, community health cares, like, like Star Health is probably one of the, the best known in our area. So it was getting people to dental appointments, GP appointments, a um, whole bunch of other, you know, again, like we said earlier, holistic um, uh, supports. Um, John John mentioned food. You know, there was food delivery, which we advocated for in, in certain hotels that weren't getting them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as what was that like for what was that like for the clients that um, you guys were helping? The food side of things. Yeah, having That's food delivered good. in their hotel room. <laughs> It was fascinating because some of the food was absolutely brilliant. We had um, there was still some people that were saying, "Oh, I'm not going to eat that," and you know, oh, you know, don't like don't like vegetarian, and I want this. And it was uh, yeah, it was quite quite funny in many respects. But in 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 a, on a serious note, there was a lot of people who were so appreciative, and you know, you you just have a look at how much um, food and it costs us nowadays. You know, five bucks for a coffee and twelve dollars for a sandwich. Um, that's it's it's you know in a big aspect it's it's frightening yeah. people that's great yeah. look I, I love hearing these anecdotal snippets and um look we're just gonna cut across to a short break um but when we come back we um i'd also love to um hear um just um how the project started and at a practical level what did it look like did you just go to um, homeless centres or housing centres or did you just walk up to people on the streets, right? At a practical level, I'd love to hear what a typical working day was like for you guys when this project was in full swing. But um, just before we do, um, we're just going to cut across a couple of quick announcements. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. So, gentlemen, we heard some very, very interesting anecdotes and snippets of um, some of these uh, individual 
um, nuances and um, um, personal preferences as well as um, uh, habits or sleeping habits, um, dietary habits of the people that um, you engage with at a one-on-one -on -one level. Um, at a sort of a, a broader level, um, I'd be interested to hear. So the project started back in May, you know, effectively, you know, the state government approached um, our service and you guys to say, hey, look, we need to do something about this. And I would imagine there was a bit of a staged rollout, you know, from May, it was just thinking about what we would do, practically what we would do. When did you actually start stomping the pavement? When did you actually start working with um, people one-on-one -on -one and with hotels? And when did the first person go into um, a hotel? Well, can't tell you when the first person went into a hotel, um, but certainly, whilst it might have seemed like it was staged, we pretty much hit the ground running. It was a brave new world. No one had, we'd never been in this space before. Um, the other thing I'd just like to clarify also is that the service we work for actually um, became proactive before funding was allocated. The need was there. They'd had the good, the good relationships with the housing providers like Launch. And so it was obvious that the need was there. So they... I guess, seconded Steve and I to do that. And eventually funding did come from the, the state government eventually to fund out that position. Um, I guess we, it, it was, like I said, it was new to us. So we went in there, Steve and I, with that basic premise, we don't want to get it, we don't want to give it. So, and we want to educate people around it. That was our main premise, as well as just introduce ourselves. So we probably spent eight, 10 weeks of that time um, introducing ourselves, getting the hotels on board. It was pointless if we're wearing full PPE and they weren't wearing full PPE, so educating around that. In fact, we gave a really um, educa brief education around PPE wearing and so forth. So it just it was difficult. Like there were things that we found, for example, when we're gearing up in PPE in the street, we're getting abused by people in the street and cars tooting us and giving us the bird and stuff like we'd done something wrong. Um, Steve and I took the attitude that humour was the only thing that was going to get us through. So I remember, Steve, when we first walked in full PPE into a hotel and everyone looked at us, we went, we come in peace. Like, and got a few laughs and then it was okay. We could start and then Others maybe would start wearing masks that weren't wearing masks before because they could see the seriousness of the situation. So it was a it was a rolling um, presence, if you like. And as Steve said, it was that presence that made a bit of a difference, that they felt like there was some control. And to be quite honest, I think everybody was lost during that period. Hotels, homeless, health. Um, but we got it together. And I guess, you know, um, part of it was that, people started to identify that yes there were needs there and yes they could be addressed without you know having to go to a hospital or anything like that so um it just made our role a lot easier and a lot smoother to sort of introduce as we went along so just yes, i remember it was a time when um you know despite some of our best planning you know a lot of uh, what we were implementing from um, a, a health provision perspective really was just a bit of a suck it and see approach so Correct. Yeah. What you were saying, um, Stephen, you had a point to make. No, I was just going to say, just and it's a nice segue to what you were saying. I think the um, just to give a bit more um, perspective around the dates, I think that the first group of um, homeless people that went into hotels was around about March, and then it wasn't until about two months later that we actually got our call up. Um, 
because I think that they, yeah, again, this was a, as everyone described, a once in a hundred year event. So there was a bit of scrambling. So the government scooped up these people, put them into this, to the roof and then realised, oh, actually, maybe they need a little bit more support um, in maintaining, you know, well-being and stuff like that. So um, just to put a little bit more sort of time frame on it. And then, as John said, 100%, we hit the ground running because we kind of, we, we'd had that little bit of a, a gap between what was happening and the reality of things. So, yeah. Is the is the program still running? Yes. Yeah. yeah, officially we are funded till June 30. But what's happened now is that there, um, what used to be called, I guess, the hotel, homeless hotels project, is now in a in a housing census transition to a, a, a thing called H to H, or um, hotels to home, uh, so that the um, the the service providers, particularly housing like the like the launch housing and um, Sacred Heart Mission and a whole bunch of others, are now assisting those people to transition out of the hotels into some housing. Hey, um, Stephen, John, a question that um, hopefully doesn't put you uh, uh, on the spot too much, but it might maybe a chance to blow your own trumpet. With the with the with with hindsight and reflection, um, back in at the start, around about May, I think I heard you say, um, what did you think success looked like? For the program, and now with the in reflection, do you think that definition is the same as what you thought it might be back then? Um, and um, and looking at it now, would you say it's a success? It, it did what it was intending to do. I I think it. I'll go forward first and say, yeah, I do think it was a success. Um, and if I could go back on it, what I hoped uh, a success would look like would be. Um, addressing the homelessness with housing uh, and not just opening the doors again and and letting people back onto the streets without any real thought or a card or a phone number or something and say, you work it out yourself. So so to me, actually, uh, and I'll use the word stock, but actually getting housing stock and people into that stock is is a a success and and a bit of... um, creative thinking around what housing looks like for people. So, um, you know, they're investing money in new buildings, but they're also investing money in fixing up other buildings. So, and they're not all the same. So it's people getting, uh, I guess, housing that suits them. So, which is, is has been good because, you know, you've, when you've got that, the numbers that they have to address, you can't ignore it. <laughs> you know, you just can't ignore it. And, you know, Stephen and I both used to say, well, one, it's going to take a lot of housing to get people, you know, so forth. We'll wonder if this golden opportunity, whether it's going to, whether they're going to do anything about it. And yes, they have done something about it, which has been really good. So the focus for us now is just making sure that those that are getting housing are getting support that they require, or at least the people who are managing their scenario, helping them to manage, uh, are aware of how the, the pathways for that support. So... Because, like I said, we're only the two of us. Sure, sure. So there's a there's a legacy that you can identify. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Sounds yeah. fantastic. And it's a great question, panel beater. As always, your questions are always <laughs> poignant. Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, without throwing a hand grenade into the room, the the challenge is that you know the the numbers of homeless are still massive. Um, you know, this this H to H project that I mentioned. Um, I don't know the exact stats, so don't quote me 100%, but, you know, what we've tried to calculate is that there's probably around 
out of that 1,600, um, probably around 10 to 15% of people will get an opportunity for some housing. And there's an awful lot that are not going to get that. In fact, we already, some people have already started returning to streets and stuff on. Some of that's their own choice and some of it's not. Mm. Um, but that's still a, still a challenge. And, and I guess to answer your previous question too about the success thing, I had no idea because um, it was a, a, a once in a hundred year event, so they keep saying. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the one thing that I uh, I also agree with John is that, yes, it was a success. And, you know, the, the, the marking for my idea of success is that we've made some difference in someone's life. And I honestly believe that, that, that the people that we dealt with, uh, by and large, that we've, we've managed to do that. The uh, the researcher in me, or somebody who likes to follow research, was: Did you guys collect a bunch of data? And are you going to write this up? Is are we going to be able to um, return to this as uh, some kind of contribution to evidence based policy making? I don't know if we, it's going to contribute to evidence based <laughs> policy making because that's up to them. But I think yeah, there is some. There has been. Um, some stats collected, and uh, we're planning on putting out some figures at some stage. Fantastic. So, and and yeah. to be fair, Rob, we probably didn't acknowledge our uh, third partner. Who, uh, uh, that's it. We've got a uh, we've got a um, psychiatric consultant that works uh, one day a week with us, um, and I know that oh well, she's done a, a a fantastic job, but I um I know that she's keen to 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 do some writing up of all of this. So we have collected some data and stats. But uh, it probably has been a little bit difficult to get as much as the of information as we would have liked. Sure. Right. Yeah. I just still think it's absolutely astounding and in, just incredible that you know there's effectively the two of you, right? Like a literally a two-man team, um, and you had uh, mm. the um, access to consulting a psychiatrist who was sessional. But it was effectively a two-person team that just went around working with all the homeless, as, as many, I should say, as many of the homeless and um, um, people and hotels and um, clinical services, housing services, NGOs, um, basically across the cities of Port Phillip, Stonington and Glen Ira. I just think that's an incredible feat. It was an effort, but it was doable. <laughs> Dr. Moto, <laughs> it was doable. We felt at the time anyway, so. Definitely. And, and you know, it, it helps that, uh, and I think John touched on it right at the very start of his introduction, is that we're both pretty passionate. So that's helped tremendously. And the fact that we get on pretty well, because we were basically travelling in a little Hyundai for, you know, <laughs> 18 months together. <laughs> but uh, humour and a lot of music got us through. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.